1: I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hey, 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 everyone, how are we doing on this bright and early? Monday morning if you are listening to me on Monday I like to think that on Monday morning while you're on your way to work or you're on your way to school maybe you'll listen to a little bit of this episode at least the intro maybe to just be like oh someone's asking how I'm doing today let's just check in let's answer Madigan even though she can't hear us even when I can't hear you I'm here for you (laughs) I recorded this a little bit funky today because I was babysitting the most gorgeous five and a half month old baby girl and so I recorded the bulk of this episode this morning before I left and now I'm recording this introduction afterwards which feels kind of funny. I had such a wonderful day with this little baby. For those of you who know me well enough by now, you know that all I really need in life are puppies and babies and I am a happy camper. I do want to start off the show with some really, really good news, some good personal news, I guess, for myself, but something that all of you may be really interested in as well. So we finally got word that... India and I are able to upload the second episode for her podcast Still Learning on Wednesday. And the reason that we were having to sit on that episode for a while is because we are going to have an article out in People Magazine. And people wanted it to be exclusive, and we'd already released the first episode, so we kind of had to compromise with them to hold off on releasing any more so that they could still kind of announce it in a way or whatever. But the social media article will be out on Wednesday, and then there will be a full article out on their website on Friday. I can't wait to share all of that with you. I can't wait to actually see how the interview turned out. I called India after it was done and asked her how it went. She filled me in, but I'm really curious as to what they kept in and what they're going to mention And I was joking with her because she was like, I mentioned my co-producer. And for any of you who have seen, I think it was Monsters University, but maybe it was Monsters Inc. The scene where they're showing the commercial for Monsters Incorporated. It must be the first one then. Anyway, they're showing the commercial for Monsters Incorporated. And you see Sully at the end of the commercial standing there. And you just see Mike Wazowski's like elbow. And at first he looks really bummed like, oh, And then Sully's like, sorry, man. And Mike Wazowski's like, I was on TV. Like, that's going to be me. If they mention co-producer anywhere, I'm going to be like, that's me. I'm famous. (laughs) Oh, it's so funny. I'm glad to be her Mike Wazowski, though. It's truly an honor. So for those of you who are interested in checking out the next episode, it's going to be out on Wednesday. But then from then on out, all of the episodes will be out on Fridays. But we can't wait for you to hear this second episode. It's going to be with our friend now. I would consider Sochal to be a friend. Social Martin, who escaped from the cult Luz del Mundo. And she was a part of this... HBO docuseries called Unveiled. But I just noticed I didn't have Netflix for a few months, I just got it back. And I noticed that they have an LDM Netflix documentary now. And I'm not sure if social took part in that. But it wouldn't surprise me because she's one of the most prominent whistleblowers for that group. It's a really Heartfelt, sometimes difficult conversation that they have together because they've both been through a lot. But there's also so much humor in this episode, too, which I think for anyone who's experienced trauma, you understand that dark humor that comes with it, where you have to laugh at certain things in order to survive. And I think it's really real. It's something we all go through in order to be able to laugh at our pain eventually to move forward. So if you haven't listened to the first episode, definitely do so. You can find Still Learning, the podcast, anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And yeah, I can't wait for all of you to hear the new episode and the rest of the amazing episodes that we have planned for season one. And then in me news, I am going to be having a new Patreon episode up next Wednesday, so in about a week and a half covering the second half of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. My coverage of the first half of the book is now available for all of the Angry Feminist Book Club listeners on Patreon. If you are not a member, feel free to go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month, or you can join the Feminist Faves for $8 a month. And I have decided that I am going to be starting maybe like a weekly, maybe a every other week advice column sort of deal for Patreon, for the feminist faves in particular. And I've been asking all of you to help me come up with names. I've gotten a couple of them, but I would really love some more ideas. I don't want to do a Dear Madigan or something like that because I have a friend, Daisy Egan, that has a Dear Daisy segment, and I know that it's been used a lot, so I don't want to be a part of that. But if you have any clever names for an advice segment for me, please, please let me know. Well, I think that's everything that I have to catch you up on before we get into the episode today. It is going to be a bit of a shorter story than usual. It's not going to be quite as long of an episode as my usual episodes would be, but it is a wonderful story. I think it's really important. And this one goes out to the kids. So today I'm going to be telling the story of Mary Beth Tinker and more specifically the case of Tinker versus Des Moines, Iowa. There isn't a whole lot of information about Mary Beth out there because she did go on to live a somewhat quote-unquote regular life, whatever you would want to call it. She didn't go on to have a life in the spotlight or anything like that. She would go on to have a pretty regular job and so on and so forth. So there isn't a whole lot of personal information about her out there. But she is most known for the case of Tinker versus Des Moines, Iowa. And though this is a shorter story, I think that this is such an important story to tell, especially when it comes to speaking about how younger generation can create change. I think it's very informative, and Mary Beth just seems like a fucking badass. Mary Beth Tinker was born in 1952 in Des Moines, Iowa. Her father was a Methodist minister, and her family was heavily involved with the Religious Society of Friends, or the Quakers. The Quakers are... They are the friends, you know? There were so many Quakers that became abolitionists. Then, of course, the abolitionists turned into the feminists. The Grimke sisters were Quakers, and that was a story that I really gravitated toward in my early days of learning about feminist history and things like that. And I'm always kind of fascinated by the Quakers and their religious beliefs because it does seem so different, Because in so many ways, I feel like their beliefs are somewhat similar to the ones that I grew up in, but these people were usually very, very radical and ready to get involved in advocating for any group of people that needed the support. And I believe they were typically white people as well, which is surprising that they would be so open to wanting to help different groups of people at this time. Her father held the belief that religious ideals should be put into action, which usually would terrify me, and it sounds super right-wing at the moment, but because of this, he and his entire family, including his wife and his six children, became active in the civil rights movement during the 1960s. Like, so fucking cool. Due to this, Mary Beth was raised to take action when she noticed inequality. When she was 13 years old, the Vietnam War was raging on and she and a group of other students decided to begin wearing black armbands with a peace sign on it to school in protest of the United States involvement in the Vietnam War, as well as to mourn the deaths on both sides of the fight. They were also wearing the armband in support of Senator Bobby Kennedy's Christmas truce, which if you will remember when I covered the World War I Christmas truce, leaders had attempted to do Christmas truces a few times since then, and they just weren't quite as successful. But this was one of those times that the American people were really pushing for a pause in the fighting The kids got the idea to wear the black armbands because this was actually first done in Des Moines after the deaths of the four young black girls that were a part of the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in 1963. It seems like the leader, at least at the start of all of this, was a kid named Christopher Eckhart, who was 16 years old. And on December 11th, 1965, he called a large group of students over to his home to plan a protest. Mary Beth and her brother John, who was 15, both went to Christopher's house. Their sister Hope, who was 11, and younger brother Paul, who was 8, would also join in on the protest. The group decided that they would wear the black armbands from December 16th through January 1st, 1965, at each of their schools. Since the kids varied in age, the protest would be carried out in schools across the district, such as North High School for John, Roosevelt High School for Christopher, William Harding Junior High for Mary Beth, and the elementary school for Hope and Paul. And for many people, this may have seemed a bit out of character for Mary Beth, because she was an incredibly quiet young girl, and she was a straight-A student. She may have been a little bit of a goody-two-shoes, I don't know, but I I definitely understand Being the type of goody two-shoe student, I don't understand the type that gets straight A's. That was definitely never me. But I can imagine having this fear of breaking the rules and what's going to happen, especially if people usually see you in a certain light. But then again, she was really raised to stand up for what she believes in. And maybe there was no fear. Maybe she just felt those convictions within her that this was the right thing to do. However, she was very nervous, she said later in an interview on the morning of December 16th as she was getting ready for school. Looking back on this at the age of 67, Mary Beth says, All the time we were seeing on the news, war, 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 the bombings, the kids running from their huts screaming. It seemed like everything was on fire. So, for a little bit of a side note history lesson, I didn't take any notes on this, and I know just a little bit about this topic. But during the Vietnam War, it was the first time that any sort of footage of the war was being publicized to the media. It was on the news stations, it was in everybody's homes for the first time. And a lot of people were very, very upset. For good reason, when they were seeing the amount of death and carnage and the effects of the Vietnam War. And that's really what started to get people against the war. And that started this anti-Vietnam War movement. But at the time of this story, it wasn't in full swing yet. It wasn't quite popular, I guess, at the time to protest the Vietnam War, because we were still a country that was, you know, supporting our troops and yada, yada, yada. So this was a bit of a precarious time for this protest to be a little bit in the middle. You know, I feel like Americans are starting to come to the realization of how terrible this war is and how senseless truly it is. I don't think anyone really understood why we were fighting at the time. So there they were, a bunch of these kids on December 16th decided to show up to school with these black armbands. But little did they know... The Des Moines schools had heard about their little plan and decided to meet before the incident occurred to create a policy which stated that school children wearing an armband would be asked to remove it immediately. Those who did not comply would be suspended and only allowed to return to school after agreeing to comply with the policy. So of course, when the kids showed up to school that day, it didn't go over well with the principal and Mary Beth was suspended along with her brother, Chris Eckhart, and three other students named Bruce Clark, Ross Peterson, and Chris Singer. The only school that did not employ the suspension policy was the elementary school that Paul and Hope went to. And this is just bizarre to me. So you'd rather have kids miss out on getting an education than let them wear the damn armbands to class. It's not disrupting anybody. If anything, it could just be seen as a fashion statement if you really want to ignore it. The Tinker children returned to school after the Christmas break without armbands, but they had chosen to wear black clothing for the remainder of the school year in protest. I read an interview that Mary Beth's brother John did where he was discussing the decision to wear all black to school, and he was like, everyone knew what that meant. They knew we were mad. Mary Beth assumed that she would serve out her short suspension and move on with her life. She said, I had no idea that our small action was going to turn into such a big thing.
0: You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it.
1: Thankfully, her Quaker parents took their children's side and argued that the school suspending their daughter and son over a protest violated their First Amendment rights to free speech and sued the school district. Eventually, after a four-year battle in the court, the case would make it all the way to the Supreme Court. And I've spoken a little bit about her parents' activity in the civil rights movement a little bit, but I do want to go a little bit more into it to give you a picture of of how Mary Beth and her brother probably came to have the spirit that they did. When talking about her parents' influence on her, Mary Beth said that she knew her father had a strong belief that you should follow your conscience. Her father had once been kicked out of a small church in Atlantic Iowa in 1957 after complaining that the public swimming pool wouldn't allow black families to swim. Their mother, Lorena, was also active politically as a leader of the peace organization in Des Moines. Her parents also both went to Mississippi in 1964 after hearing about Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, three civil rights workers who were murdered. And I want to give you a little bit of this backstory as well, simply because it's so fascinating. You know that if I see a name that's got a link connected to it, I'm like, well, now I got to know what this is all about. So I did a little bit of side research on this story to give you a little bit of background to see what the Tinker parents were so upset about. So here's the short of the long of it. On June 12th, 1964, three young men disappeared in a town near Philadelphia, Mississippi. The men were James Cheney and Michael, or Mikey, Schwerner, who worked for the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. With them was Andrew Goodman, who was a college student who volunteered to work as part of the 1964 Mississippi Summer Project. However, the Ku Klux Klan membership was soaring in Mississippi at the time, with more than 10,000 members in the state, and this was a very dangerous endeavor. Those who were part of the summer project would consistently be the subjects of violence from the KKK. Cheney and Schwerner were returning to Mississippi from a trip, and they had Goodman with them in the car when they were pulled over for speeding. The authorities knew that their station wagon was a core vehicle, so I'm sure they were targeted. The police arrested all three of them, and the three were told that they had to remain in jail until the Justice of the Peace arrived to process their fine. So they're like, okay, I guess we're stuck here. The men were also denied a phone call, but luckily, core members noticed their absence and began calling around to jails and police stations all over the place. Apparently, this had happened before. This was all policy, which is just, oh, it's so terrifying, but I'm also so glad that there are people around them who are aware of where they're supposed to be and that they're not there and that they were on it right away. Around 10 p.m., the men were given their speeding fine and told to get out of the county. But what's strange is that the justice of the peace never arrived and they were being told that they had to wait on the guy. But they took the advice and they left. But the three men were never seen alive again. The men were missing for six weeks, but after an extensive search, they were found deceased after receiving a tip from an informant. The FBI investigated the case, but state law enforcement didn't pursue it due to insufficient evidence. There's a lot more to this story, but like I said, I wanted to give this context to help show you the kinds of people that Mary Beth's parents were and the example that they set for their kids. Mary Beth even said that this is one of her like first memories was going down with her parents to take part in this. She says that deciding to wear the armband had a lot to do with her Quaker upbringing. She said, don't wait for heaven, get started right here on earth, being brotherly and understanding and making a more peaceful world. Her brother, John Tinker, had also had some of his own prior experience with activism and protests, as he and Christopher Eckhard, they were real good buddies, had attended a protest the month before the armband protests at their school against the Vietnam War in Washington, D.C., to which I say, damn, your parents let you go at 15 and 16 years old to Washington, D.C.? This story takes place in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> So, after the suspensions and the Tinker family starting to make a fuss with the school about all of it, the school staff met again for a meeting on January 3rd and the board upheld the principal's ban 5 to 2. In attendance were hundreds of people. Some supported the teenagers, but many others called their protest un American. Like I said, it wasn't really cool yet to be against the Vietnam War. Previous court decisions such as West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett, which had established that students did have some constitutional protections in public schools, was a really important case when leading into trial for this, as it was the first case to safeguard public school children's rights to free speech. And then in Stromberg versus California, that was the first case to acknowledge symbolic speech as well. The First Amendment's protections had been spelled out in the Constitution, but until Tinker, the courts hadn't considered how the amendment applied to students. A law professor for the American University in Washington said, Students were supposed to go to school and do what they were told. It was unclear what rights they had. Tinker would change all of that. A suit was filed on March 14, 1966, after the Iowa Civil Liberties Union approached the Tinkers and the ACLU agreed to help with the lawsuit. The lead attorney for the case was a guy named Dan Johnston. The school officials were represented by the Des Moines Independent Community School District. The children's fathers then sent the suit to the U.S. District Court, who upheld the decision of the Des Moines School Board, so they still had more fighting to do. Then, there was a tie vote in the U.S. Court of Appeals, which again meant that they were upholding the school's decision yet again. This caused the Tinkers and the Eckhards to appeal to the Supreme Court directly. At this time, the only students still involved in the lawsuit were John and Mary Beth Tinker and Christopher Eckhart. During the case, the Tinkers received hate mail, death threats, and other hateful messages, Once, red paint was thrown at their home. I can't imagine how terrifying that would be and how strong you would have to be to stand in your convictions and follow through with fighting it again and again and again, even though you're constantly being told no. But they knew. They knew that they had their rights and they knew that they had to make a change and all I can think about is how supportive these parents are and how important that is to creating such a self-confident child. And it really seems like both Mary Beth and John and even the little ones who were so on board to being a part of this protest, they just seem to have such self-assurance, especially for young kids, to know what's right and wrong and to follow that good nature that they have, to really want to help people. I'm just really blown away by this family. It seems like they really, really knew how to be good parents and good community members, good friends. I hope they're not secretly garbage because I'm a big fan. So eventually the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court on November 12th, 1968. So this is about... Three years after the initial protest occurred, almost. It was funded by a woman named Louise Noun, who was the president of the Iowa Civil Liberties Union, and her brother, Joseph Rosenfield, who was a wealthy businessman. Also, side note, Louise seems really fucking awesome. She looks like an adorable old lady. I don't know if that's an appropriate thing to say because she also seems like a badass. But this sweet little woman wrote four books about the history of feminism in Iowa and in the United States. And she wrote an autobiography called Journey to Autonomy, which I feel like I definitely need to find somewhere online and read. And I don't know, maybe there will be an episode on her someday if there's enough information on her. Anyway, on February 24th, 1969, the court ruled seven to two that the students do not, quote, shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate, which meant they were in the students favor. They found that the First Amendment applied to public schools, and school officials could not censor student speech unless it disrupts the educational process. Which, when I first read this, I was like, hmm, this seems a little bit broad, but more on that in just a second. They argued that since wearing a black armband was not disruptive, the court held that the First Amendment protected their right to wear them. So when I was looking more into this case, I was reading information on the ACLU website, and there they talk about the rights that students have and the most appropriate ways to express yourself on school grounds. Students have the right to speak out, hand out flyers and petitions, and wear expressive clothing, such as a black armband. There was another case that involved the support of students being able to wear t-shirts that supported the LGBTQ community, anything else like that, that you should be able to wear it to school, as long as it's in line with their policies as far as their dress code goes. So what counts as Disruptive. It varies by context, but a school disagreeing with your position or thinking that your speech is controversial or in bad taste is not enough to qualify a disruption. This actually makes me think of this kid in my school who was like, I don't mean this as being offensive, but I don't know how else to describe him. He was a full on redneck kid. His neck was literally always sunburned. He was this super tall, toe-head blonde, blue-eyed. He chewed tobacco, so he always kind of had like a dumb look on his face. Uh, And I remember when we were probably like sophomores in high school, he was wearing a Brad Paisley concert shirt. And the album name, concert name, song name was Alcohol just alcohol. That was super popular at the time. And the tagline is, uh, some of the best times you'll never remember. And he was yelled at so much for wearing that shirt to school. And I, I mean, I guess like you can't wear anything that represents alcohol or weed or drugs or have any swear words on it or nudity, like that I totally understand. So I think that that's kind of the parameters that we are working with here, but I do remember that kid getting in a lot of trouble for wearing that shirt, but just continuing to wear it anyway. (laughs) The court's majority opinion was written by Justice Abe Fortas, who stated... In our system, state operated schools may not be enclaves of totalitarianism. School officials do not possess absolute authorities over their students. Students are possessed of fundamental rights which the state must respect, just as they themselves must respect their obligations to the state. In our system, students may not be regarded as closed circuit recipients of only that which the state chooses to communicate they may not be confined to the expression of those sentiments that are officially approved. In the absence of a specific showing of constitutionally valid reasons to regulate their speech, students are entitled to freedom of expression of their views. There are still some limits, though, as to what students can do in public schools. A school can discipline you for participating in a walkout since it goes against their attendance policy. The Tinker case was precedent-setting and has been referenced often in cases since then. The ACLU of Louisiana filed a lawsuit on behalf of a sophomore honor student and vice president of her class who was threatened after wearing a black armband in protest of a mandatory school uniform policy. When the student, Jennifer, began wearing the armband, other classmates began to join in. During the school day, Parkway High School's principal, Kim Gaspard, pulled Jennifer and three other students out of class and asked them to remove their armbands or face punishment for uniform violations, which could ultimately have them suspended or even expelled. The students, always having been considered quote-unquote good students, listened to their principal and removed the armbands before returning to class. Later, Jennifer and her parents pointed out to the principal that due to the result of Tinker, Jennifer had every right to wear the armband. The school responded that they didn't care and suggested that the family take the issue to court. Damn, how much money does that school have to be able to afford going to court? The ACLU asked Judge Donald Walker to, one, declare the ban on black armbands as unconstitutional, and two, grant a preliminary and permanent injunction enjoining the defendants from enforcing the Parkway ban on Jennifer from taking disciplinary action against her now or in the future on account of the issue. So I tried to look into the Parkway ban, and it seems like at the time there were other types of bans going on in this school district. There was an article about a teacher getting in trouble for teaching a banned book, so on and so forth, and thanks to Tinker, that case was thankfully won by the students as well. The Tinker case was also remembered on March 14th, 2018, when thousands of students walked out of their classes in a demand to end gun violence after the shooting at the Parkland School in Florida. In this case, some of the school officials helped the students with the protest, while others threatened to suspend them. Before the protest, the ACLU reminded the students that their schools could punish them for not attending class, but they couldn't discipline the kids who walked out, quote, more harshly because of the political nature of or the message behind their actions. The fact that students cannot be punished for their views came directly from the Tinker case. One legal expert refers to Tinker as almost the Declaration of Independence for students. And because it's so prominent, there's a term called the Tinker Test that's become known as a way to deal with other cases regarding freedom of speech in public schools. Mary Beth, who was in the 11th grade when the case was finally closed, was surprised that it came out in their favor. Like I said at the top of the episode, she went on to live a pretty normal, quote-unquote, life. She went on to earn her master's degree in public health and nursing and worked as a pediatric nurse, and she had a very long career in the field. Later on in life, she began to educate students on their rights and frequently began speaking to student groups across the country. She, along with student rights attorney Mike Highstand, called this the Tinker Tour. In 2006, as a tribute to her devotion to the rights of young people, the ACLU National Board of Directors Youth Affairs Committee renamed its annual award the Mary Beth Tinker Youth Involvement Award. Mary Beth tells the students in her speeches, when you find an issue that you care about that affects your life and you join up with a group of others to take action, then life becomes so meaningful. I really love this because like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode as well, the question that I probably get asked the most frequently is how can I get more involved? And this question comes a lot from teenagers and younger people who who feel like because they can't vote or, you know, run for office or do a lot of these other things that they don't have the power and the capacity to make change. But that's simply not true. Protest and petitions, so on and so forth. There are so many different ways to stand up for what you believe in that anybody can do. And I really love the fact that she points out to find something that you really care about and i think that in the world of activism and feminism there's so many different routes that you can take and there's so many different layers and i think that it's also about really finding your niche the thing that really you know either grinds your gears or sets a fire under you and makes you want to get to work you know whatever that thing is that you feel passionate about or you feel passionately about changing finding that thing is what's going to really help Propel you forward. I love that this exists because I think that there are so many young people out there that do want to make a change. And I'm glad that Mary Beth and this lawyer friend of hers are going all around the country and speaking with students who have that question so they can find resources and, you know, the courage and strength within themselves to be able to. Fight for what they believe in. And I think that Mary Beth's story is such an amazing example of what a young person can do. I mean, they didn't get punished, but her younger siblings were, I think, eight and 11 when this happened. They were even younger and they were standing up for what they believe in. And I just find that so moving. I just, I love the young people. You know what I'm saying? I also wanted to find out what happened to Christopher Eckhardt, and in doing so, I couldn't find out much about him, but I did find a website that was remembering him after his passing in 2013. His friend David Hudson wrote about Christopher, He is not a household name, as he was not the first plaintiff listed in the lawsuit. That honor fell to the other two plaintiffs, with the last name of Tinker. Yet, Eckhardt was an essential part of the case. After explaining Christopher's role in the case, he finished— Eckhard was justifiably proud of his significant role in history. I just thought this was such an amazing story. I was bummed that there wasn't more information out there for me to be able to do a more in-depth biography on all of the students and you know more stories about what was involved if there is anyone out there that's listening to this that happens to have some sort of connection to this case and has more information I really really want to know I would love to reach out to Mary Beth Tinker and even see if maybe she would want to come on for an interview or something because I just I found this story to be so inspirational and so important because I truly do feel like as kids you can And sometimes feel like you're powerless and that all of the adults around you are making all of the decisions for you. But being able to find your own autonomy, even as a child, is really, really important. And I love that the Tinker family was already so involved politically, but that's not everyone's story either. But I think that either way, this is really, hopefully, an inspiring story to anyone who is a teenager still, not an adult yet, who is listening to this podcast, who needs a little bit of hope or motivation. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you enjoy the show and you think others would too, go ahead and send them an episode that you think might interest them. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and probably some other places that you listen as well. But it really, really helps to rate and review, particularly on Apple Podcasts, because you can write a little sentence about why you enjoy the show. And that truly is very, very beneficial to me. Don't forget even more feminist content by joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash Feminist. The link for that is in the show notes as well. You can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5 a month or get a little bit of extra bonus content on top of the book club stuff for $7 a month and become a feminist fave. I hope all of you had a wonderful weekend. I hope you have a peaceful, lovely week. I love you all very much. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye.